Welcome back to The Shaping of the Modern World. I'm Stephen Remy. I'm a professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. This podcast series supports my course, The Shaping of the Modern World. In this episode, The Imperial World at War, Act Three, Empire's Revenge. From 1940 through 1942, Fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, and Imperial Japan reached the greatest extent of their imperial control. Take another look at the maps of wartime Europe and Asia on the accompanying PowerPoint presentation. These show the extent of German and Japanese control in Europe and Asia, respectively, through 1942. And look at the interesting map of the world around the middle of 1942. It provides a vision of what was at stake by showing how German and Japanese forces, had they been victorious in Europe and Asia, might have joined up around 70 degrees longitude. That is the line that runs north-south through Russia, Central Asia, and what is today Pakistan and India. In February 1941, as Japanese forces invaded the British imperial stronghold of Singapore, the British writer George Orwell articulated what was at stake in a radio broadcast. And here I'm quoting George Orwell. The general plan is for the Germans to break through by land so as to reach the Persian Gulf while the Japanese gain mastery over the Indian Ocean. The Germans and Japanese have evidently staked everything on this maneuver in the confidence that if they can bring it off, it will have won them the war. If Singapore is lost, India becomes, for the time being, the center of the war. One might say, the center of the world. See the PowerPoint presentation for the quotation. Well, Singapore did fall to the Japanese on February 15, 1941. But just as the Germans never defeated the Soviet Union and thus never broke through the Middle East to India, Japan could not hold its empire and an attempted invasion of India in 1944 failed. By 1945, Japan, Germany, and Italy had all been defeated by an alliance of Great Britain, the United States, and the Soviet Union. But armed conflict over imperial spaces would continue long after the defeat of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. The year 1945 marked another turning point in the long global war for empires that had begun in the mid-19th century. I'll start with Italy's empire in Africa. Italy's attempt to build an African empire began in the late 1800s, following defeat in Ethiopia in 1896 and the successful takeover of Eritrea and Somalia, Italy turned to what is today Libya, at that time part of the Ottoman Empire. Sensing an opportunity to take advantage of the weakening Ottoman position in North Africa, Italian forces invaded Libya in 1911. Yet it would take years for Italy to exert control over the entire colony, most of which was a vast desert. Benito Mussolini's regime would complete the takeover in the 1920s. And as you know, Italian forces invaded Ethiopia again in 1935. The conquest of Ethiopia meant that Italy now controlled a substantial part of northern and eastern Africa, Libya, 
Ethiopia, Eritrea, and what was known as Italian Somaliland. Italian imperialists hoped to use these colonies as sources of raw materials and as sites of settlement for Italians. But Italian rule would not last long. British naval power in the Mediterranean and Red Seas was far superior to that of Italy's. On land in East Africa, Italy's empire was surrounded by that of Britons in Kenya, Sudan, and British Somaliland. See the map of the wider Mediterranean region on the PowerPoint presentation. In, in mid-1940, Italian forces made some advances into these territories, but the British, with the crucial assistance of Indian and African personnel, drove the Italians back. Over the course of 1941, Italy lost its East African Empire. As one historian noted recently, the defeat of the Italians in East Africa represented the first major land victory for the Allies during World War II. Allied victory in North Africa took longer, mainly because in 1941, Nazi Germany sent one of its most talented generals to reinforce the far less capable Italians. But by the middle of 1943, North Africa was in Allied hands, making it possible for the invasion of the island of Sicily and then the Italian peninsula in the summer and fall. Nazi Germany's imperial project in Eastern Europe was far more destructive. In September 1939, German forces invaded Poland. Beginning in the spring of 1940, Germany turned west and invaded Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Belgium, and France. At one point, Hitler planned to invade the British Isles, but instead deployed the German Air Force to bomb British cities in hopes of forcing the British to make peace. It didn't work. Britain stayed in the war. With the help of the United States, the British Navy and Air Force also kept open crucial lines of shipping across the Atlantic and in the Mediterranean. But that still left Western Europe almost entirely in Hitler's control. There, the Germans mostly relied on local collaborators to run these countries. There was no intention to settle large Germans there. Hitler's real interest was in Eastern Europe and Russia, the territories which Hitler considered living space, as the Nazis called it, for an expanding German race. In June 1941, Nazi Germany launched the largest single land invasion in history, codenamed Operation Barbarossa. Three million German soldiers invaded the Soviet Union along a massive front. Initially, the Soviets suffered massive casualties and huge material losses. But Russia remained undefeated. It would not be until 1943 and 1944 that the Army of the USSR, known as the Red Army, would drive German forces out of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And it would not be until 1943 and 1944 that Allied forces liberated Western Europe. In April 1945, the Red Army conquered the German capital, Berlin. Rather than flee or risk capture, Adolf Hitler committed suicide. During the years Nazi Germany controlled Eastern Europe and large parts of the USSR, it began the process of building its new empire, mainly in Poland and Ukraine. The plan was to force the resident population of Slavic peoples to work 
for ethnic Germans who already resided in these regions and new German settlers until they, the Slavic peoples, had died out. But a different fate awaited the region's Jews. Nazi Germany's empire in Europe bore some similarities to other modern imperial projects, but it was different in some crucial respects. The Nazi regime took the violence of imperialism to a new level when it tried to deliberately murder an entire group of people, the Jews. This attempt put what becomes known as the Holocaust at the most extreme end of imperial projects that produced repeated instances of mass murder and population transfers, known in more recent years as ethnic cleansing. But why try to murder all the members of a particular group of people? Why would any imperial power deliberately kill off a population that in reality posed no serious threat to its rule and could have been the source of very cheap labor or even slave labor? The answer has to do with the seriousness with which Hitler and Nazi officials took racism. At the core of Hitler's worldview, and hence the ideology of the Nazi party, was biological racism, the belief that humanity was divided hierarchically into races. For Hitler, the Germanic or Nordic race, sometimes referred to as, quote, Aryans, were the superior race. Slavic people, Slip peoples, Asians, and non-whites generally were inferior. And at the very bottom, he placed the Jews, which he considered to be a race of people. Now, despite the fact that Hitler considered Jews to be an inferior race, at the same time, he believed the Jews to be extraordinarily powerful. Powerful on a global scale and hostile to the German people. He believed that Jews were responsible for global communism. He also believed that Jews controlled global capitalism. It's important to stress that none of this was remotely true. But to this day, anti-Semites around the world believe the same lies. Long before he became Germany's dictator, Hitler advocated the complete removal of Jews from Germany without compromise, as he put it in writing, as early as 1918. When he came to power in 1933, he first tried to encourage Germany's relatively small Jewish population to leave the country, and tens of thousands did. But the larger problem for Hitler was that the vast majority of Europe's Jews lived not in Germany, but in Poland, the Baltic states, Belarus, and Ukraine. That is the region where he intended to build his empire, his Garden of Eden, as he expected it to be. So he knew the Jews in this part of Europe would have to be removed. But how the Germans attempted to do this was determined by the unforeseen course of the war. Above all, the failure to defeat Britain and the USSR. At one point early in the war, the Germans planned to transport Europe's Jews to the island of Madagascar, which was then a French colony, where they would be allowed to die or be murdered. But doing this would require that Britain and its powerful navy not be, be out of the war. But Britain had stayed in the war, so the Nazi regime required another solution. One possibility was that once the Soviet Union was defeated, Europe's Jews would be transported 
beyond the Ural Mountains in Russia and deep into Asia, where their fate would be of no concern to the Germans. But the Germans never defeated the Russians, so the Nazi regime required another solution. If it became impossible to remove the Jews physically from Europe, they would have to be killed in Europe. But the question was how? German forces had already been murdering large numbers of Jews in Eastern Europe by mass shootings. Historians now refer to this stage of the Holocaust as the Holocaust by bullets. Ultimately, some two million of the roughly six million European Jews killed in the Holocaust were murdered this way. But what the Nazi regime called, quote, the final solution to the Jewish question in Europe could not be conducted only by firing squads. Once again, another solution was necessary. The Nazi regime had already been experimenting with using poison gas to kill mentally and physically handicapped people. Now the basic idea was transferred to the project of killing every Jew in Europe. The regime would build a handful of fixed installations in Poland designed for the sole purpose of murdering huge numbers of people as quickly as possible. These were the death camps, and there were four of them, Treblinka, Sobibor, and Belchek. Auschwitz was a giant hybrid camp that combined a concentration camp of the more traditional sort, an industrial slave labor facility, and a death camp. The death camps began operating in the fall of 1941. They ceased operation in November 1943 when the Germans dismantled all of them except Auschwitz, which Russian forces captured nearly intact in February 1945. The project of mass murder was not limited to Eastern Europe. The Germans and those Europeans who collaborated with them also rounded up Jews in Western Europe, in France, Italy, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and deported them by train to the East, where most were murdered in the death camps. It's important to distinguish the death camps from the vastly larger, larger number of concentration camps and ghettos. The ghettos were especially designated areas of towns and cities in German-occupied Eastern Europe where Jews were required to live. Historians recently determined that there were at least 42,500 concentration camps, sub- and satellite camps, and ghettos in Germany and in parts of Europe controlled by the Germans. The Germans and their allies continued to murder European Jews until very late in the war. In 1944, when it was obvious to all but the most self-deluded Nazi that Germany would soon lose the war, the regime targeted the last large surviving population of European Jews, the Jews of Hungary. Neither, nearly half a million Hungarian Jews were rounded up by the Germans with the assistance of a ferociously anti-Semitic Hungarian fascist group called the Arrow Cross. Hungary's Jews were transported by train to Auschwitz and murdered in a matter of weeks. And at the very end, the Germans evacuated the camps and marched the surviving prisoners deep into Germany as the Americans and British closed in from the west and the Russians closed in from the east. The perverse irony, of course, was that a large number of Holocaust survivors found themselves in Germany when the Nazi regime finally surrendered in May 1945. Hitler's racism was extreme, but hardly original. 
his ideology was a version of what W.E.B. Du Bois identified as whiteness. There had, of course, been several long destructive wars in Europe, but none like this. And as Du Bois and other anti-imperialists of color, such as the American political scientist Ralph Bunch and the Martinican poet Amé Césaire, understood, there was something familiar about Nazi Germany's empire in Eastern Europe. They understood that Europeans were now doing to other Europeans what they had been doing to non-white peoples around the world for centuries. A similar dynamic was at work in Japan's attempt to dominate Asia. You'll recall that Japan's war of conquest in China began in the early 1930s and did not end until Japan's final defeat in 1945. While Japan never succeeded in conquering China, it did briefly control much of Southeast Asia and large swaths of the Pacific Ocean. In its propaganda, the Japanese government claimed that it was securing Asia for Asians by forcing the British out of Hong Kong, Malaya, and Singapore, the French out of Indochina, the Dutch out of Indonesia, and the Americans out of the Philippines. And at first, quite a few people across Southeast Asia believed the Japanese government and were happy to see an Asian state humiliate the Europeans and Americans. One of the most stunning of Japan's military victories took place in early 1942, a brilliant military operation on the Malayan Peninsula and the ensuing attack on the strategic stronghold city of Singapore. The British were handed one of the greatest military defeats in modern history. See the map on the accompanying PowerPoint presentation. But it soon became clear that Japan had no intention of liberating Asia from imperialism. In reality, Japan became the new imperial power and behaved like one by extracting resources and labor from its new Asian subjects. And, just like in other imperial spaces, armed resistance erupted against the Japanese, supported in some places, like Malaya, by the British. In the spring and summer of 1944, Japanese forces attempted to invade India, but were stopped by British and Indian forces in two of the least well-known but most important battles of World War II, Imphal and Kohima. In the end, it was Japan's failure to conquer China and invade India, the brutality of its imperial rule in Asia, the entry of the United States into the war, and the ability of the Western allies to outproduce the enemy that led to Japan's final defeat. So these imperial projects were similar in some ways to others, but also quite different. They were similar in that they were brutal and exploitative and justified by claims of racial and civilizational superiority. But they were different in that they did not last very long. They were also constructed to be locally or regionally self-sufficient. That is, they were not intended to become part of a globalized system of exchange as the European overseas empire empires were. Perhaps most important of all, the nature of imperial rule, along with the wider global war, unleashed forces that would result in decolonization. Thanks for listening, and be well.